uh, do pastors' taxes from all 50 states free of charge, and we do uh, missionary serving, I think, in 43 different countries. My bedtime reading is Master Tax Guide. Uh, if you can't sleep at night, get a copy. You won't get through the first two paragraphs, and you will sleep like a baby. If you understand what it says, you'll wake up every two hours and cry. <laughs> so... This is a great privilege. Uh, my wife and I travel the country. We spend three months back in Ohio, Springfield, Ohio, and where my daughter and son-in-law uh, built an apartment for us, so I don't have to live in airplanes. A uh, little trivia, a friend of mine gave me a National Geographic map. He bought it for me, a huge thing, 50 states, and he said, I want, to put you, I want you to put a red dot next to every airport you have flown into in the United States to speak, 348 different airports. I'm flown out. I don't care if I get on another airplane. How's that? No, it's been a great privilege. Lots of fun. When you travel, things happen. And I tell this little story. I'm speaking in North Chicago. And Monday morning early, they take me down to O'Hare to catch my flight back to LAX. And they lost my flight schedule. Flew me out on Friday, American Airlines. And they, had, they lost me. I appear nowhere on their computers. And, and I said, well, you brought me out here. In fact, I had my boarding pass from the Friday flight. And I said, here, here's proof that you flew me out on Friday. They admitted they had a computer snafu. And I said, well, you just need to get me back. Well, coach is full. And I said, really? I said, is there a seat in first class? Yeah, there's one left. I said, it's your responsibility to move me up. So they did. So I go to the gate. I get on the plane. The seat next to me is empty. And just before they close the cabin door, a guy comes in, he sits down next to me. And we're taxiing out to the runway, and I look at him, and I say, uh, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm in the movie industry. And I said, really? I said, are you surviving? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm making it. I'm making it. We get in the air, and he asks me what I do. So I told him about my ministry, and he was really interested in my ministry. He wanted me to share with him my favorite scripture and all that, and the, the, the detail of what I do and what I teach, and... We talked almost nonstop across the country, land at LAX, pull up to the gate, and the stewardess asks us guys to be seated just for a couple seconds, and she escorts this guy off the plane. I get up to leave, and the guy across the aisle from me is laughing. He says, don't you know who that was? And I said, no. He says, that was Tom Cruise. So I said, who is Tom Cruise? <laughs> I'd have a clue who he was. Well, they said, the guys were all laughing. They said to me, we were eavesdropping on your conversation, and we could tell you didn't know who he was. <laughs> and we also figured out that he knew you didn't know who he was. <laughs> what is he, Church of Scientology, I find out, you know? He had a full beard, so I didn't, I didn't connect with who he was. Things happen, right? My kids say, Dad, quit telling that story. That's an embarrassment to the family. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, today is Stewardship Sunday. This is how I've spent my life. In fact, this is the beginning of my 45th year traveling the country and doing these stewardship seminars. Uh, last night, we started it with the leadership. And this morning is the three convictions for biblical stewardship from Matthew 6. And then in Sunday school, we're going to do the 14 steps of financial freedom. We're going to put it to work. Let's look at it practically. How should we live today in light of what's going on in this economy economically? Then we're going to do a quick lunch, and we'll do the estate planning seminar. Folks, this is an important issue, the living trust, the revocable living trust. Why is that so critical in the state of California? What about guardianship issues? There was a court case in Connecticut a few years ago where the guardianship issues was really challenged by a very liberal judge. 
So some good things came out of that, but also some warnings. So we'll talk about that. The seminar only takes about a half an hour. I'll get you out of there very quickly. And I'll use, we'll have some time for Q&A. And, and then I have a guy that is, goes to Grace Community Church. I've known him for about 10 years. Uh, your pastor knows him well. He'll do your living trust for you. He doesn't for anybody in a church where I speak, if they're interested. For $950, folks, he will do your living trust. He does a living trust, a pour over will, a durable power of health, a power of attorney, the HIPAA agreement. You get a little notebook. He meets with you individually. It's a deal. Let me tell you, you can't touch it elsewhere. So anyway, I'll make that available to you if you're interested. If you're not, that's totally up to you. But that's, that's going to be the day. It'll be a quickie. I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you. So I trust it will be helpful and encouraging to you. All right? Take your Bibles, will you, and turn with me to my favorite text on stewardship. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Now, the outline of what we're going to talk about this morning is in your bulletin. You'll see it, the three convictions for biblical stewardship. That's, we will be referring to that after this text. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye, therefore your eye is good. Some translations say clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, some translations say cloudy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? <clears throat> no one can serve two masters. Either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and treasures. You cannot serve God and riches. <clears throat> you can summarize these six verses like this. You can look at verses 19 and 20. You can say earthly treasures corrupt. People, if money gets to the point where it begins to control your life, it will probably eventually corrupt your life. Money can do that. We read about it every day in the newspapers. You can look at verses 22 and 23. You can say yearning for earthly treasures could cause to you to lose your spiritual vision. You can look at verse 24. and You can say money can even draw you away from any interest in serving Jesus Christ. So if you buy into the materialistic mentality of our culture and it permeates our culture and money begins to control your life, it will eventually corrupt your life because now you have a new God. It's called money. The next step is you could lose what vision God has given you with, to, to serve him with. The end result, it could even draw you away from any interest in serving Jesus Christ. When you look at verses 19 and 20, 19 says... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20 says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures on earth are temporary. Treasures on earth have no redeeming value whatsoever. Treasures on earth are the clothes on our back, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the pension plans we accumulate. None of that has any redeeming value whatsoever. People, you came into this world with nothing. You are going to leave it with nothing. You will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? You didn't get that. That dear guy left all his money behind for his kids to squander. <laughs> he went to heaven with nothing. 
He came to earth with nothing. Verse 20 commands us to lay up treasures in heaven because treasures in heaven are eternal. So the question you could be asking yourself is what are treasures in heaven? Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Nothing precedes us to heaven except people. Nothing will follow us to heaven except people. So I can say to you this morning, Christians should buy people for heaven. And how do we do that? By investing our lives and our resources in the Lord's work. Think of the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. At that moment, things began to change. No, you didn't fully understand the Lordship of Christ. We go through a life of that, trying to learn that and come in control of that. But your life began to change. Your priorities changed. Your goals changed. Your outlook changed. Because now you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And your focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what a privileged people we are. You can look at verses 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is clear, your body's full of light. If your eye is cloudy, your body's full of darkness. What's he talking about there? Well, we all have two eyes. That's how we understand the things about us, basically. We enjoy God's beautiful creation by and large through our eyesight. You know, you, have a, you also have a spiritual eye. It's our heart. Our heart is the very eye of our soul. It's through our spiritual eye, our heart, that God's truth comes to us. How, how do we understand the mysteries in the word of God? And there are plenty of them. Things like eternal life. Things like God never had a beginning. Think about that one for a while. God never had a beginning. God sent his son to this earth as God slash man to die to forgive us of our sins and offer us eternal life. Wow. Well, what about creation? What came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. Full grown. God said chicken. Well, he breathed it. And there was a chicken. It's no mystery. It's all explaining the word of God. But those truths are revealed to us through God's word. Through our spiritual eye, our heart. And if our spiritual eye, our heart is clear, we have an understanding of all that because we read his word, we meditate upon his word, we memorize his word, and our passion is to mirror the word of God to the culture. We have a clear eye. If we have a cloudy eye, maybe because money controls our life. And there's a lot of prohibition in scripture about money controlling our life. Did you know there's over 2,350 verses in the Bible about money and material possessions? Over 2,350 Obviously, God in his infinite wisdom knew we were going to need a lot of help, right? Verse 24 talks about divided loyalties. You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in treasures. You can't have a clear eye and a cloudy eye. People, you can't have one foot on earth and the other foot in heaven. It compartmentalizes your life. Our life is a package. It works together to glorify Jesus Christ. Don't ever come to me and say, Jim, I'm faithful to my church. I lead a Bible study. I'm faithful to that Bible study. I attend it every week. I lead my family in devotions. I'm uh, out of control financially, but I'm okay. No, you're not. No, you're not. You just compartmentalized your life. Our life is a package. It works together to glorify Jesus Christ. And money in his word is a very big part of that. Because he knew that's where we live. 
all of us. Every day we make decisions that affect financial issues in our life. So the help is there. The key verse here is Matthew 6.21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. People, where we put our money is where our heart is. How we handle our money is an outward manifestation of what's really going on in our heart and life. It comes back to the heart. Because it's a heart issue, it's a spiritual issue. And I will make this statement. I've done this for a long time. After we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, one of the most important issues we're going to have to face as believers, one of the biggest challenges is how we handle our money. Because that is an outward manifestation of what's really going on in our heart and life. Where we put our money is where our heart is. That's why it's such an important issue. So let me, call, let me show you God's financial plan. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 16.2. And then flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Watch how this flows. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. In your handout, your number one conviction is generosity. That's the cornerstone principle for biblical stewardship is generosity. Having a heart and a passion for generosity. It's not about self, it's about others. It's about being generous, having a passion of generosity. So look at 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing them as he may prosper. Be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. Well, you say, I'm not prosperous. Everybody in this auditorium is prosperous. You live in America, you're prosperous. People, this is the most successful financial story in the history of the world. Nobody, no country compares to America economically. Nobody. They're not on our planet economically. The most successful story in the history of the world, we are the most successful people living in the most successful country in the history of the world. So we're all prosperous. We're all prosperous. Yes, it's relative. Some more prosperous than others. We have a lot to be thankful for in this country. What's really sad is most Christians take it, or most Americans take it for granted. Take it for granted. Look at, the, look at the politicians. Listen to what they say every time there's a, some kind of a contest for political office. Are you better off than you were four years ago? What a ridiculous statement. What a total ridiculous statement. We're all better off. We're all doing well. Come on. This is America. Give me a break. So give as God has prospered you. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. This I say, he who sows sparingly, or a little bit, will also reap sparingly, or a little bit. He who sows bountifully, or a whole lot, will also reap bountifully, or a whole lot. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Very important phrase. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Now when you read these three verses, the question you could ask yourself is what is the blessing or what is the harvest? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. For people, there are two benefits that accrues to a believer who is generous. 
The first benefit is found there in verse 7. It's that little phrase, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 7 starts out, so that each one give as he purposes in his own heart. Giving is always voluntary. We are free to give from a willing heart. It's not casual giving. It should be purposeful giving. We give with no reluctance. It's not what we have to do. There's no pressure. We give because it's in your heart. Giving is a heart issue. Giving is a proper motive issue. Tithing can be legalistic if you're not careful. If you ever come to church and give because you sense you have to give, there's a possibility you could be giving grudgingly. People, if you ever find yourself giving to the Lord's work grudgingly, you might stick it back. You might as well stick it back in your pocket because that dishonors God. That's wrong heart. That's wrong motive. That's the first benefit. Give as God has prospered you, and God loves a cheerful giver. You know what the Greek word for cheerful is? It's hilarious. It's God loves a hilarious it's not the guy that walks in that door and he sits down in one of the chairs and he says, oh, you know, you come to Cornerstone and uh, nah, they'll sing a few songs and then someone will pray and then um, they'll ask you for your money. They passed that, uh, what was that, a sock? Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they ask you for your money. No, it's the guy that comes in that door and he sits down in that chair and he says, oh, another opportunity to give. Another, another opportunity to, to impact California for the cause of Christ. The United States, the world at large. Hey, I can do that. I can even double. That's what he's talking about. That's a hilarious giver. There's a second benefit. It's verse 8. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Now, if this is not health, wealth, prosperity, you see counterfeited on television. Those are counterfeits. They get on national television. They have their so-called ministries. They're con artists. And they say, send me your seed money and you will be healed. Uh, send me your seed money, and your debts will go away. I heard this the other day. And so gullible people send them their seed money, and they're not healed, and their debts don't go away. And who do those people blame for that? They blame God. That's who they blame for that. The most heinous of crimes. The most heinous of crimes. Biblically literate believers are not fooled by the counterfeits. They're not fooled by the counterfeits. How would you like to stand before the Lord someday in their shoes? And the Lord says, uh, you know what you did with your life? You fleeced the flock to fund your lavish lifestyle. Whoa. Whoa. Counterfeits. That's not what this is about. Verse 8 is about the abounding grace of God in our heart and life when we're generous. God will pour out abounding grace. You sow, you reap. Verse 6 says, you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Verse 7 says, you give cheerfully. Verse 8 says, God will pour out abounding grace to you. You give, God gives back all grace. God gives, God gives back so you can do even more. It comes back to the heart, comes back to the motive. It goes like this. <clears throat> if you're generous, God will lie to continue to be generous. If you're generous, you'll receive generosity. I'm sure you've been in a testimony time when someone would stand up and say, you know what, I've learned you can't outgive God. That's not smoke and mirrors. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. You realize that God's plan for prosperity rejects, re rejects hoarding money. God's plan for prosperity demands that we give it away. That tests one's very faith. 
comes back to the heart. It always comes back to the heart. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, you give God, will refill everything. Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 22, God blesses the faithful giver. Proverbs 28, 27, give to the poor, you will never want. Isaiah 48, 17, and 18, if you would have done what I told you, I would have flooded you. My favorite is Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. There is one who scatters yet increases all the more. Then there is one who withholds what is just due, but results only more want. Ever watch the life of a stingy person? They're never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They want more and more and better and better and better. They can't give it away. They can't give it away because it might undermine their lavish lifestyle. These verses, Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, concludes with this sentence, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be prospered. Him, he who waters will himself be watered. You sow generously, you receive generosity. If you're generous, God will lie to continue to be generous. Three things happen to, the, to a believer who's generous. Number one, it breaks the chain of selfishness in their life. Generous people aren't selfish people. Their concern is about others. Number two, it'll humble you. It's humbling to be generous. It's humbling. You know, folks, we came through a tough recession since 2007. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Travel with me across this country. A lot of people are working in, in, in jobs that are below their ability. And they're making less money because of the recession we went through. We're coming out of that. But it took a long time. What a joy to be able to walk up to someone you know who's struggling financially. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe they just lost their job issue. And put your arm around them and say to them, you know what? I'm not just going to pray for you. I'm going to help you pay for that utility bill. I'm going to help you buy those groceries so you can feed your family. That's humbling to be able to do that. So number one, if you're generous, it'll break this chain of selfishness in your life. Number two, it'll humble you. Number three, it'll place a loose grip on your possessions because you know from the word of God it all belongs to him anyway. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The silver and gold is his. He's just loaned it to his people to serve him with and to enjoy. And we're to be good stewards of that. That's the whole point. It comes back to the heart. It always comes back to the heart. Now, you've got to be careful. You don't ever give to get. You don't ever give within your back of your mind or in your heart. You're giving to get. That's wrong motive. That's wrong heart. Because what you might get back from the Lord might not be material. He may give you that extra measure of faith when you need it. He may give you the ability to love the unlovable. To show, to, to show pity to people who are hurting to show tenderness. He may give you courage when you need to stand tall, give a testimony. He may give you strength when you're tired. He may give you zeal for his work, enlightenment on his word. He may give you wisdom. All that grace God is able to bestow on those he loves and those he loves uniquely. You are uniquely loved by God when you're a generous giver to his work. What the Bible teaches. Not a recordism. That's what the Bible teaches. It comes back to the heart. It always comes back to the heart. So the number one conviction in stewardship, biblical stewardship, starts out with a spirit of generosity. That starts the whole process. If I'm generous, everything flows from there because I'm dealing with the right heart. That's what the Bible teaches. Always comes back to the heart. Always comes back to the right motive. 
Now look at your handout. There's a second conviction. Learn to be content. Learn to be content. One of the strongest worded exhortations in scriptures, this issue of biblical contentment, comes back to the heart. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this issue of biblical contentment. Look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. This issue of biblical contentment. I'm generous because I'm content. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. We've brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. The biblical definition of contentment is synonymous with obedience. Contentment is a preoccupation with the well-being of others. It's a focus on others. It's not a focus on self. Now look at verse 9. But it says, however, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The kind of a person money controls their life. This person is compulsive. This person, verse 9, is greedy. This person will probably eventually lose their integrity because money controls their life. Now look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money, it's the love of it. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Comes back to the heart. Always comes back to the heart. If I'm generous, it's because I'm content. I'm content during the good times. I'm content during the tough times. You know one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture is Philippians 4.13. You see it in placards and stadiums, football stadiums and baseball stadiums and soccer stadiums. You see it in the eyeshadow of professional athletes. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They look at that verse as a success verse. Proverbs 4.13 is not a, uh, Philippians 4.13 is not a success verse. It is a contentment verse. I'm content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when I lose my job, when I get injured. Why? Because I know God is sovereign. I know God is in control. I know God has a purpose for everything. My reliance is on him. That was a wake up. How's that? Totally misunderstood scripture. Unbelievable. Look at your handout. Buy a modest home. Buy cars that meet needs. Pay your bills on time. Is it a need to want a car? I need a car. I want a Cadillac. I desire a Mercedes. A little bit, little bit different price tag, meeting the same basic needs. Like the guy that walked up to his group of buddies and sticks out his chest and says, uh, I have a house full of furniture from France that goes all the way back to Louis the 19th, Louis the 14th. I have a house full, house full of furniture from France that goes all the way back to Louis the 14th. The other guy says, That's nothing. I've got a house full of furniture from Sears that going back on the 15th. Little reality, right? Little reality. People, it's not the high cost of living that gets us, but living high. It's not how much you make. It's how well you want to live. It's not how much you make. It's how well you want to live. And Every one of us, including yours truly, needs to look in that mirror every once in a while and say, do I need all this stuff? Do I need all these toys? Do I need all these things? When we live in a culture 
where people every day, every minute, every second are dying without Jesus Christ and going to hell. Wow. So I'm generous because I'm content. If I'm generous and I'm content, it's because I'm a person with integrity. I want to do what the Bible says. I want to do what is right. Let's look at this issue of deceit, integrity. Flip back to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 16 to 19. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. Look at this. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, saith seven are an abomination to him. That's strong language. The proud look, that's deceit. The lying tongue, that's deceit. Hands that shed innocent blood, how about hands that destroy innocent reputations? A heart that deviseth wicked plans or schemes. People, if money controls your life, you're a schemer. If you are preoccupied with money, you're a schemer. And God hates that form of behavior. Whoa. Feet that are swift and running to evil or mischief. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. Chapter 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without righteousness or without justice. A person who has vast revenues without justice, without righteousness in their heart and in their lives is a rule breaker. Ever bend the rules? Ever bend the rules on your tax returns? <laughs> you business people, ever bend the rules on your professional expense accounts? Ever take a discount you're not entitled to? We don't do that. If you're a believer, you don't do that. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1 of Proverbs. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Perverse person is a boaster, braggart, proud, know-it-all. Look at chapter 20, verse 7. This is my favorite one. Proverbs 20, verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Mom and dad, you want to raise children of integrity? Grandma and grandpa, you want to see grandkids of integrity? How about being examples of integrity? How about being models of integrity in all that we say and do? Pretty challenging. My wife and I and our family, our eight grandkids and our children, are on vacation in Colorado Springs a couple years ago. We were there for a week. I flew into Colorado Springs. I rented a car from Enterprise. Had it for the week, and during the middle of the week, I took my two grandsons, or teenagers, to, to a fast food restaurant. Got done eating, backed out of the parking lot, backed into a post. Put a nice crease in that bumper. Saturday, took the car back to Enterprise, had those two grandsons with me. I walked, I drove in, got out of the car, here come the Enterprise guy, and he had a clipboard. He walked around the car, looked at it, signed it, gave it to me to sign, which means the car's okay. And I said, no, wait, 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 wait. Took him around the back of the car, I said, see that crease in that bumper? I said, you missed that. I put that crease in that bumper. I'm responsible for that. He was shocked. He thought I crawled off from underneath a rock. <laughs> he said to me, I can't believe you're telling me this. And he said, if you hadn't have told me this, this car would have gotten checked. I could have been personally responsible because I didn't see that crease in that bumper. So I gave him my testimony. I said, I don't have a choice. 
I put that crease in that bumper. I gave him my testimony. I said, I have a Lord I'm accountable to. And you know what? I have two grandkids I'm accountable to. Yeah, you bet. Come on, people. We don't play those games. We don't play. We're Christians. We're believers. We do what the Bible says. We do what is right all of the time. We are not for sale. We are not for sale. We live in a culture that has sold out locked stock and barrel. We do not participate in that. Amen? Come on. That's who we are. It comes back to the heart. Always comes back to the heart. Where's your heart this morning? What's important to you? Generosity, contentment, and integrity. Those are the cornerstone principles for biblical stewardship. It starts with generosity. That means my heart is right. And out of that flows contentment. I can't be generous if I'm not content. I'm content. I'm content with where God has me, regardless. Because I know he's sovereign. And I know he has a purpose for my life. Gener generous, content, integrity. I want to do what is right. I want to do what honors the name of Jesus Christ. Now, look at your handout. It talks about the generous life. Let me close with this. Let me contrast the life of one who is caught up in the tithing principle and one who understands the New Testament principle of generosity. Tithing is not a New Testament principle, folks. That's Old Testament. That is Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, that money was not given to the church. It was given to the government. Look at the difference. A tither is self-focused. A generous person is focused on the Lord. A tither is limited 10%. A generous person is limitless. How, the God how God provides. Tither is momentary. Generous person is committed. It's their life. A tither, it's obligatory. They have to do it. Generous person, it's voluntary. They want to do it because they love Jesus Christ. It's a form of worship. A tither has to do it. A generous person wants to do it. Now look at the last one. The tither, one who's caught up in tithing, considers his resources as his. He is the owner. A generous person looks at his resources as a manager. I'm the manager of the resources that God has given me to serving with. That's a whole different mindset. And that's the biblical approach. And that's the biblical definition of generosity. We're not the owners. We're the managers. If the money you oversee is not yours but God's, how does that change one's outlook on money? It's a whole different mindset. Generosity, contentment, integrity. That's it. It's not rocket science. The biblical principle for stewardship. Now, the next hour, we're going to hit the practical side. Now, here's how we live it in this tough economy. Are we facing economic Armageddon? I don't know. I don't know, but I'll touch on that. All right? Father, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these principles that are so clear and so dear and so true. Thank you for sending your son to die that we can have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. And maybe there's one here this morning who doesn't know you, Lord, as their personal Savior. We just trust that they will not leave this place until they talk to someone about what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to have Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Thank you for this church, for its leadership, for its history, for its love for you. God, help us to be faithful in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.